Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Views that I express on this podcast and on my social media accounts are mine alone and do not reflect the views of the Metropolitan Government of Nashville and Davidson County. My guest on this episode of the Nashville Sounding Board is Lindsey Krinks. In 2010, Lindsey co-founded Open Table Nashville, which is an interfaith homeless outreach nonprofit. I first met Lindsey in 2011 during the Occupy movement and her ability to speak about inequality and poverty on the local level while bringing in a faith perspective really resonated with me. And I think you'll find this interview to be very informative and powerful as she speaks about the state of homelessness and our crisis of affordability within Nashville. I'll tell you that after we recorded the interview, I went home and set up a recurring contribution to Open Table Nashville. It took me about three minutes. And I know that by setting it up on a recurring basis, I don't have to rediscover the great work that they do and make a new commitment to that each month or each year. It's set. And so I'd very much encourage each of you to do the same. Thanks for listening and hope you enjoy this episode. So people can get to know you a little bit. What's a book recommendation that you have for us? So I would definitely recommend in this housing climate in Nashville that people read the book called Evicted. Um, it really spotlights what's happening on a national basis with the affordable housing crisis, with the movement from having a lot of people be homeowners to fewer and fewer people and larger and larger corporations owning more um, homes and what that's done to done to the people across America. We're certainly seeing that here in Nashville. So Evicted would highly recommend it. Really great book. Well, thanks for that. And I know that we met back in Occupy, I guess, in 2011. Um, and so can you talk about sort of your work before that? And since then, I think you've been at Open Table, you said since 2010. Yeah. Which is sort of how you arrived in this work. Absolutely. Um, I actually got involved as a senior at Lipscomb University in 2007 um, with homeless outreach and homeless organizing. I literally stumbled upon the offices of the Nashville Homeless Power Project and then met Charlie Strobel, who became one of my mentors and was just directly pulled into that work. I saw the city in a new light and was so drawn to that. I have a um, a number of my family members have experienced homelessness, so it's something that's pretty personal for me. But 2007, I graduated, and then I um, co-founded Open Table Nashville in 2010 with Ingrid McIntyre and a couple others, and did Occupy in 2011, grad school, finished that at Vanderbilt Divinity School in 2013, but have been working on the streets here in Nashville since 2007. Wow. So over a decade now. Over a decade. Yeah. It makes me feel old. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel it. And can you talk about the work that Open Table does? I know a lot of people are familiar with it, but just sort of on a day-to-day basis, what's the process of working with homeless people and trying to get them into housing? Yeah, so we're an interfaith homeless outreach organization, and so instead of people coming to us like they would at Room in the Inn and the Mission, we go out to where they are. So on any given day, our offices, the underpasses, it's the campsites, it's the jails, the alleys, the slums, the hospital rooms. And we work to meet people where they are, build relationships, and then help them navigate the resources. 
in whatever direction they want to go. Some people are interested in healthcare. Others are interested in affordable housing. Others just need community and support so they can start to heal and not be so alone. Um, Our goal is really to help people work toward housing um, kind of when they're ready. But there's a lot of barriers for folks. One very simple one involved in the housing process is just getting people's documents, right? So on the streets, it's really easy to have your bag stolen. Or I met, I've met a woman who's still unhoused downtown who was born at home. She has no record of birth. And her name wow. is like, her name is like Jane Smith. It's basically that. So about everybody in the world has her name. We cannot get her documents. And so she can't get housing. So we start rebuilding by getting Maybe the birth a certificate. Maybe listening or something. Can yeah, help. <laughs> that would be lovely. I can give you her real name if you're yeah. interested in helping us. Um, but that's her. That's her barrier. Um, so we. She's one of the only people that I've ever not been able to get documents for. Um, and we get the birth certificates, the IDs, the social security cards, and then we start looking at their income range. Maybe they are working or want to work. Maybe they have disability. Maybe they're on fixed income. But um, a lot of the folks we work with are going to need either need some kind of subsidized housing, so either Section 8 or public housing. And we can talk more certainly about the waiting list, but um, it's harder and harder to get those get in those spots, and it takes longer and longer. But we just navigate that with people. Um, you know, is their background going to be – a barrier? Do they have felonies? Do they need to go through some programs so they won't get denied when we apply places? Do we need to get expungements? That kind of thing. So everybody's different, but um, we just kind of walk people through that process. That's our specialty. Um, and we're really good at building relationships with folks who aren't getting services anywhere else. That's kind of, we fill the gap there. I guess since you started in 2010, how have you seen the the shape and form that homelessness takes here in Nashville shift? And is there greater demand now? Is there different demand? Kind of what have you seen change? Across the country and Tennessee and Nashville, we have seen a rise in family homelessness. So the fastest growing demographic of people experiencing homelessness is children across the country. We've absolutely seen that. And there are places you wouldn't expect, right? They're in the seedy hotels off Trinity Lane or Dickerson Pike or Murfreesboro, doubled up, tripled up. They're in cars. Um, It's a really sad situation. So the stereotype of, you know, the single man who has addiction issues or is a veteran, that doesn't really apply um, to how we're seeing homelessness change and morph. And we can talk a little bit about why that is. But um, I've absolutely seen an increase in homelessness. You know, after Hurricane Katrina hit, we got a lot of folks um, from there that moved directly into Tent City. After the recession in 2008, the foreclosure crisis was a really big deal. It took homeownership away from a lot of folks that were on that brink, and that was devastating. We saw a big uptick there. We're actually doing a little bit better for a while, I think, with the start of the House Nashville program. That was maybe 2013 um, that the Homelessness Commission led under Will Connolly. But then we started seeing the affordable housing units disappear through the quick gentrification of our city in the years following that. The affordable housing crisis here is real. It is deep. It is pushing people out of our city that should be here. When you see things like the statistics that, oh, like income is getting better in Nashville or whatever, 
that's because most of the people who are poor have, have moved out and have been pushed out. So um, it's it's been really devastating. We've lost a lot of people. We've seen a lot of folks fall through the gaps, and we're seeing a lot of people live in subhuman conditions in our own city right now. I was just at campsites off Murfreesboro yesterday and um, saw somebody living in an old refrigerator box, you know. So, and it's freezing, um, but the conditions are really dire. Going back to what you said about kind of the face of homelessness and how it's not necessarily a drug addicted veteran or something mm-hmm. that's kind of the stereotype, what is the more typical story of how people fall into homelessness and lose housing? And, and, and to what extent is it still connected with addiction and mental health problems? Yeah. So... A lot of folks um, will experience homelessness in their lifetimes in a more transitional way, you know? Like, my husband and I were, um, we got a 30-day notice on a place we were renting. You know, we got 60 days. We lived with my cousin for a minute till we mm-hmm. figured out what we are going to do. So a lot of people um, experience transitional or, like, transitory homelessness where it's just in and out, in and out. But um, we're seeing more people experience chronic homelessness and when they get out it's harder to get back into a place because there aren't those low-income options that they used to be able to roll to we're seeing a lot of trailer parks be bulldozed and paved over and condos going up in their place trailer parks used to be a really big deal for some of our folks with barriers that they would move right into Um, so we're definitely seeing that it's mental health and addiction issues are prevalent whether you're housed or unhoused But with the trauma that people experience on the streets, if you don't have a mental health issue or an addiction issue when you get on the streets, it's really hard to stay that way um, because of the trauma of homelessness. So just that survival mode that people go into, um, if you can't get the meds you need, which we know a lot of our people are uninsured and don't have options, how are you going to medicate yourself? Somebody's going to hand you something and you're going to get hooked. And then there's a co-occurring disorder where you have the mental health issues, the trauma issues and the addiction issues, and it's really hard to break out of. And unfortunately, the biggest mental health provider in Nashville is our jail, right? Like literally, it's a Davidson County Sheriff's Office. It's our our jail systems. So instead of having, I think we're taking some steps in the right direction there with a diversion um, system that we're working on. But we're still a very far way from being where we need to be. And A lot of folks that can't get the treatment that they need, whether it's mental health or addiction, just get deeper and deeper into the streets and then the criminal justice system. So like I had a guy I was working with recently who was uninsured and he had substance abuse issue. He was actually born addicted to alcohol because his mother drank. He's been drinking since he was tiny. His uncle put it in his bottle when he was little to calm him down. He's trying to break that cycle. He's uninsured. We called so many places to try to get treatment for him because he keeps getting arrested. But nobody will take him without insurance. There's waiting lists everywhere. So it's actually easier for him to get keep getting arrested and cost taxpayers money um, than it is for him to find a treatment bed that will take him soon. So, I mean, you know, we make it really easy to get in the criminal justice system, but we make it really hard to get out. You've talked in the kind of open table literature about a radical culture of care within our city. What would that look like? And if that's um, if that's a 10 on a 1 to 10 <laughs> scale, how would you rate our performance currently as a city? Yeah. So I would rate us as a 5. 
I would have said four, but we just passed the COB <laughs> and Metro is opening for winter shelters, overflow shelters, which is a really big deal to folks. And so that bumped us up to a five. Okay. <laughs> so I'm happy to say <laughs> we are not a four anymore. Um, but for me, a radical culture of care looks like ensuring no one freezes to death on the streets this winter. Um, it looks like neighbors looking out for neighbors, no matter what their housing or immigration status it looks like establishing a living wage um, so the people who actually work in the lower-paying jobs can still live here. Um, it looks like expanding tin care. It looks like having some checks and balances so our city isn't sold off to the highest bidder anymore. Um, it looks like ending social and racial profiling by the police, which continues to be a problem. Um, and it looks like having an ethical shift in our city where we're actually putting people over profit like the well-being of our people over money. That is one of the reasons that got me out to Occupy, right? Um, people over profit. And there was a lot of reasons that got me out there, but that was one that still rings so true. I, I think we're, if we haven't already lost our soul in Nashville, we're very close to it um, because of the way we've treated the poorest among us. And that's really sad. There's not enough checks and balances right now, and there needs to be. You mentioned kind of highest bidder. I listened to you and some other open table people, both staff and homeless people, mm -hmm. um, at the Parks Board public hearing about the proposed Church Street land swap. You spoke against it. Um, the park, of course, is is heavily utilized by homeless persons, and the land swap deal includes supportive housing, I believe, for 100 people as part of the deal. What do you think about the proposal, and why did you come down against it? It's interesting that it's kind of like two deals are put into the same bucket for this, right? There's a service center, which we're absolutely for with the affordable housing, the 100 units of affordable housing. That is a dire, desperate need. Um, could we do it for less than $25 million? Probably, but, but we need a good service center. We need those units in the downtown area because more and more units that are affordable are getting pushed out of downtown by the condos or boutique hotels, um, like we saw with James Robertson, right? Um, all of those units going several years back. And that so, would be financed with with, uh, with GO bonds, bonds mm -hmm. that were already approved by council. Right. So that's a, in my mind, that's a completely separate process and a completely separate project than the land swap. We are 100% behind the service center. I think they're moving toward getting an advisory board that includes folks experiencing homelessness that have or are currently. And that's a really important part of this, I think, not just talking to the providers or to the politicians, but actually to the people. Um, so hopefully that's in the works. As um, a sidebar, I was incredibly impressed with the man who mm -hmm. his moniker is the mayor of, of homeless Nashville, Howard I guess. Howard Allen. <laughs> That guy was really impressive. Yeah. He is one of he speaks at our advocacy and policy trainings and has been a longtime friend. I met him through the Nashville Homeless Power Project a long time ago. Um Very but cool. he's great. And again, we always say we're not a voice for the voiceless. People have their own voices. Yep. We're a microphone. And one of the reasons why um you might hear us speaking a little bit more critically about the land swap deal is because that's what we hear from some of our friends on the streets. They're the library park, um, even with some of its problems, is a sanctuary for them. You know, every day people have to wait outside the library. People who sleep downtown, who sleep on the streets, have to wait outside um, until 9 a.m. when the library opens. 
And that park gives them a safe place to do that. Um, the park gives them a place to meet up. Um, we certainly provide services there. Every outreach worker in this town has gone to the library park to meet people. Um, and it's unfortunate what's happened over the years. Um, you know, there used to be a lot of public benches on Capitol Boulevard um, and on Church Street. But over the last several years, um, over 30 public benches have been removed, which has actually resulted in that area, the three or four blocks around the library. And what that's done is it's kind of like channeled people into that park. Um, If we had more benches, people could be a little bit more dispersed. But with all the development, those benches were removed, and we fought that for a while and couldn't get anywhere and kind of had to switch our efforts on fighting some other things. But... Now, who makes that decision to remove the benches, and and how was that? Mm-hmm. What was the rationale behind that? So, Public Works actually is the group that pulls the benches, and when we've asked who makes this decision, um, we've gone up the ladder, and we haven't really gotten many answers. Um, just last year, there is a woman who everybody knows if they're downtown who always has bags over her head. She was on a bench on Church Street, a block away, where they're doing the new federal courthouse. She got up from her bench where she'd lived for over a year and um, and left her bags and went to the library. And when she came back, her bags and the bench was completely gone. And I found her after that. We were able to get her bags back. Um, but I called Public Works and I called up the ladder and they were like, oh, you know, something about the slat was wrong. So we took it out. I was like, well, when are you going to replace it? And they're like, soon, soon. That bench hasn't been replaced. That's what's happened with all of them. So if you really want to get to the bottom of that, ask Public Works who sent in the orders to remove over 30 public benches in that area over the last probably now five, six years. But um, but that to say, with the land swap, um, people feel like that's a sanctuary for them. They feel safe in that area because the library is there. It's a huge public service resource. And to turn Church Street into a playground for the rich and just further entrench it to be a prison for the poor is not the direction I think we want to move as a city. Um, Certainly a lot can be done with that. Um, Annie Dudley Boulevard or whatever used to be Capitol Boulevard right there to make it more pedestrian friendly. But we did get um, the first proposed land swap did not have a one-for-one replacement of the park. This one does. They just want to move it up near the bus terminal. And that's better. It still gives people a place, but it's a highly difficult area. Is that just going to move the move the issue and further entrench Church Street um, to be, again, a playground for the rich? Probably. It just doesn't feel like an equitable deal to me the way it stands right now. Um, we saw a lot of really amazing work with the um, Stand Up Nashville group to get a CBA for the stadium. Um, and that is way more equitable than it was before. That deal is now way more equitable because of the community benefits agreement. Right now, the land swap deal does not seem equitable because of the profit Tony G stands to gain. And he is reinvesting some, but I don't think enough. So, I guess next, going back to the work of Open Table, what are the merits of the Housing First model of addressing homelessness, and does that ever put you at odds with other homelessness programs and and services that are provided in Nashville? Yeah, so we are huge proponents of Housing First. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of Housing First models at all in Nashville that are thriving or really even in existence. Housing First models date back to the 1990s, and they say, you know, 
it's actually more cost-effective and humanitarian to house people than it is to keep them on the streets. And instead of saying, well, you can't get housing until you work, until you're always taking your meds, until you um, get sober, until you um, figure out a job and get your budget together, they say, no, housing stabilizes people. You need housing first. We're going to put a roof over your head first. We're going to surround you with support services. So when you're ready, you can work through that and have the support you need. But that stability is crucial to people. And that's they can start to heal and start to work on their, um, their things like any of us have when they're in the stability of a home. Um, and Housing First proponents and other advocates across the country talk about how um, permanent supportive housing is actually way more cost effective than keeping folks on the streets long term because of the cost with emergency services, because of shelter costs, which are actually pretty high, um, because of the cost of um, policing, um, court costs, everything. So it's actually like across the nation, I'm trying to find the statistic. One of the Colorado studies said, um, from a few years back said, you know, it costs about $17,000 to provide housing for someone on the streets, but it costs about between thirty-three dollars and $43,000 on average to keep people unhoused because of the amount of um, emergency services and shelter costs and other costs they're incurring on the streets, court costs. So, so with Housing First, again, it's a very low barrier mode of housing. It's moving people directly from the streets into housing and then working on things. And it really prioritizes their choice, which I think is really huge. A lot of our people don't have a lot of choice um, in where they're going to move because there's not any options for them. So it's a really wonderful model. Other groups in the city might say, no, they need to work on all those things first. They need to go through these programs first. And that will work better for some folks. Um, but for some of the folks we meet, they're not going to be able to get sober until they have stability. Are you ever at odds then, I guess, as kind of your your mission, your focus, competition for dollars or whatever it is? Are you ever at odds with other groups that are trying to address the problem? No, um, we don't go for the federal grants with Open Table Nashville. We actually don't take any government funds. We have a very much grassroots funding base, and we'd like to keep it that way. That allows us to do some of the advocacy that's really important to us and not to have strings attached. That's one of the reasons why we haven't taken money from the city, too. We we want to be able to advocate and not to have things hold us back from that. So, so like no, that. I'd say it doesn't really put us at odds. Um, there are certainly different approaches that different groups take. Um, and people might not always appreciate our very justice-oriented approach, but that's part of who we are. That's your identity. That, that is. Going back to kind of the highest bitter point and also your position as kind of an honest counterbalance and voice within the city, just this week we heard the announcement of Amazon coming to Nashville, not in the form of the so-called HQ2, but in the form of 5,000 jobs, average salary of $150,000, a lot of incentive money both from the city and the state to attract them here. What was your reaction to that announcement? And what do you think it says about the direction the city is going? I'm honestly still processing that. Um, I'm also trying to hear from others what they think that's going to mean and how that's going to affect our housing market. Um, I definitely have concerns. You know, it's great that we're attracting so many, um, not, we are attracting different headquarters. We're attracting higher paying jobs. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but we're not doing enough for the bottom and the middle. And I'm pretty concerned about our lack of living wage, um, our lack of affordable housing. And I am still processing the Amazon thing. I'd be very interested in what you think. Um, we, we've had a couple nights of winter already, and I haven't quite wrapped my head around that. Mm-hmm. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. And I hope that I hope that we're continuing to focus on on the bottom as well. It's certainly great to have better opportunities for the top, but but we have people dying, <laughs> you know, on the streets. So we have we have so many people that are trying to thrive um, while others are just trying to survive. And there should be more equity. It just struck me, uh, you know, sitting down with you tonight and that announcement two days ago, and just kind of couldn't be more of a contrast. And I am right with you. It's very exciting. Bring jobs in. But I think people have to also be aware of the costs associated with it. I think it will have an effect on affordability within the city. Yeah, that's what we've heard from other cities that have attracted those kind of things. It affects their housing. So, Um, Years ago, probably 2010, 2009, I visited the tent city a few Mm -hmm. times while I was a student at Vanderbilt. And that was removed, and the homeless residents there were forced elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And I know a similar thing happened at Fort Negley, and was there was an attempt made to force people out from below uh, Ellington Parkway. What is op- Open Table's role when that's happened or when it's attempted, and what happens to those people? Like, how do these developments start and mm-hmm. move? Great question. We actually got our start. We were founded in 2010 after the flood cleared Tent City. We had been advocating for two years when the city was going to close Tent City in 2008. We advocated to keep it open successfully before Open Table is a thing. Those of us were with different agencies. And um, one of the roles we take when there's a massive camp closure is to stand with the residents in solidarity, um, kind of an accompaniment style, to say, you know, um, what do y'all think? Do y'all do y'all have a place to go? Are there options being provided for you? Or are you just going to have to relocate somewhere illegally? Like, we're not moving folks into housing from the camps, um, unfortunately. We, we're definitely trying to do that on the long term. But when a camp closes, people scatter and have nowhere to go and actually further entrenches them in homelessness because now they don't have all of their stuff. Now they've got to rebuild or figure out where to go. Now they're going to get cited um, when they go other places that are illegal. So we accompany them. We stand in solidarity with them. We help them organize. Um, and that involves meeting with the camp residents, seeing what they want, seeing where they are. Do they want to fight this? And if so, how can we support um, we we're real honest with camps. There have been a couple camps we haven't been able to support, but at least six that we have in fighting displacement. And we say to the camps, like, y'all have to make sure you're cleaning up your act too. Like, that means picking up trash. That means looking out for each other. That means keeping the drama down, you know. Mm-hmm. And if y'all are serious about this, we will stand with you. If they come to arrest you, we will get arrested too. And so we help the residents organize. Oftentimes, they'll form a self-governing council. Right now, Ellington has a self-governing council. Um, it's small, and it's um, a little bit messy at times, but there are people down there that are on a governing council together um, trying to keep the drama down, trying to keep people safe. And then we get media pressure. We, we go first to the city and say, you know, there's you know 10 people, there's 20 people, there's 30 people here. They're couples or pet owners. They can't go to the other shelters. Um, do you have an option for them when this closes or not? 
And if they say no, we say, well, please allow it to stay open until um, until they find housing, because just moving the problem somewhere else isn't going to help anybody. Um, and if they the city says, no, we're going to stick to this timeline, then we organize, then we do more public pressure. But we always go to the decision makers first to say, can you change this? Um, and the media pressure has really worked. The public gets displacement in Nashville. There's a lot of sympathy for people being moved out of the only place they can call home with no other options. The waiting lists are astronomical right now. It's not like we can close Ellington Camp and house all the people there immediately. Um, so, so yeah, we stand with them. Um, we've been huge advocates for that people have the right to exist. And unless there are alternatives, people should be allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. Um, One question I have at the bottom of my list, but I don't want it to get buried at, at the mm-hmm. end if people drop off. What do you recommend for listeners to do? I mean, I, I encounter homeless people walking around when I'm driving. To what extent is kind of giving food or money a practical solution? Should we just give to open table? I mean, what what's sort of the best way that people can kind of be involved? Yeah, that's a great question. We get that from every group we talk to. And one of the things we say, like if I was talking to a church group right now, I would tell them, you know, that parable about the Good Samaritan, mm-hmm. um, the Good Samaritan was prepared. He had the wine and the bandages to dress the man's wounds in his bag with him. So what mm-hmm. could you carry with you on your person or in your car? You know you're going to see somebody at that median. You know you're going to mm-hmm. walk past somebody on your way to your car. Um, think about seasonal items. Right now, carrying hand warmers and good socks with you is so huge. Carrying good gloves with you, having a couple extra blankets in your car to help out folks. Those emergency blankets that are those Mylar foil space blankets are really awesome. Um, they're kind of magical, but they really keep people warm. Um, so in the summer, carrying extra water with you. Um, if you carry snacks, think about things that people can eat. It certainly helps to donate, and monthly donations are huge to organizations like ours to keep our work going. But anybody can be prepared. And at least even I tell people, even when they don't have anything, even when they don't have a couple of dollars, even when they don't have the socks or water or gloves or whatever, just affirm people's dignity. Even if you don't have anything, just be honest, smile, wave. The way you interact with people can change their body chemistry. Um, just waving and smiling and saying, I don't have anything today, but hey, mm-hmm. and I'll look for you next time. I hope it gets better for you. That makes a huge difference. And that's another part of that radical culture of care, right? Just affirming each other's dignity and the small interactions because we can't just do the – we need the justice stuff, but we also still need that mercy and compassion. We need all the levels of care um, from the bottom to the top, from the individual interactions to the systemic change. And that's the that's the kind of personal and systemic transformation we're, we're wanting to bring in the city and we've tried to be a part of here. Beautifully said. So if, if people do want to give to Open Table, I guess you have recurring contributions from your site? It's huge, yes. That is a big help. OpenTableNashville.org? .org. Perfect. So kind of going back to the waiting list, how long is the waiting list for affordable housing and how do individuals and families navigate that process? Yeah, so most of the folks we work with, again, are going to be um, on the lower income scale, that zero to 60 percent AMI. Um, and they're really going to have to get subsidized housing through Section 8 or public housing. And what's so crazy, the Section 8 vouchers 
a lot of folks will know how that works, but that's a voucher given. And then the person only has to spend 30% of their income in rent, which is, you know, to make it not cost burdened, their rent not cost burdened. So with Section 8, what we're seeing is, you know, the waiting list opened in August of 2015 for about a little over a week. And it opened again in September 2017. It hasn't opened since then. That waiting list is capped and it closes. And the last time it opened in 2017, there were over 14,000 households. Let that sink in. 14,000 households that applied to be on that waiting list. That waiting list is a lottery basis. So when people apply, they never know when their number is going to be called. And we just got the stats from MDHA last week that only 55 to 60 percent of the vouchers are being used right now. So just a little over half, a little under half of the vouchers are not being used because people can't find a place. Not as many landlords are taking Section 8 because they can rent it for, you know, a short-term rental or whatever and get way more money. So the voucher, getting your name on the list is hard because the waiting list closes. Then getting your name called is hard and maybe you've moved and you changed your address and it's really hard to get the notification. Um, And then finding a place once you finally get the voucher, it's devastating. We've seen so many people get vouchers and not find a place to use them. Um, You know, if 45% of the people aren't being able to use their vouchers, that's a big deal. So that's Section 8. Public housing is similar. Different public housing places open at different times, and we never really know when the waiting lists are going to open up, Um, you know, at Casey or at Napier or at the Towers somewhere. Um, So it's kind of we always have to be watching the radar. And then when it opens, we apply all the people we can. And then, again, it's a lottery system. So we never know when our people are going to be called. Um, It can take um, 8 to 12 months on a waiting list, if not longer. Um, With the low-income housing around town, a lot of the apartment complexes we're calling around are like, oh, we have a six-month waiting list or longer. So those are the more low-income, affordable, income-based places. So we're really struggling. Um, We're trying to keep people alive in that time. That's one of the reasons why we're building a microhome village is to keep medically vulnerable people alive until their name is called on a waiting list. I was just about to ask about the tiny homes. I know I had Jeff Carr on during his campaign, and that Mm -hmm. was something that he helped launch. And so kind of where is that at now? Yeah, so we've come through a lot of hurdles, but we're in the midst of building 22 microhomes. The foundational work is almost complete. If you were to come to Glencliff United Methodist right now, you would see a sea of mud mostly, <laughs> but a lot of because it's rainy and it's wet today. The pipes are being put in, the electricity is going to be going in soon, and so all the foundational work is wrapping up, and then we'll be going vertical with the homes. So we could not be more excited we are so ready to get those done. It's been a long process for us, but we it will save lives of the people we love. We're ready. And you mentioned the waiting lists of 14,000, and we know that that's a small number because it's capped and there are many right. more waiting to get on the waiting list. What's an estimate for the number of homeless people in Nashville? Yeah. So our best estimate as advocates and advocates that have studied the numbers and been around quite a while here is that there are around 20,000 people experiencing homelessness in Nashville, um, up to six to 8,000 of those being under 18. 
um, in the school systems. Now, those not only include the numbers for the shelters and the folks on the streets that we find during the annual point-in-time count that happens in January, but that also includes an estimate of some of the people living in cars, doubling up, and living in hotels. And if you want to try to figure out what that number means, imagine being in Bridgestone Arena mm-hmm. with every single seat packed to the brim and then a little bit more, and that's 20000 So that arena completely full, um, every seat full. It's really overwhelming um, to think about the need. We know that our city is going to need, by 2025, at least 31,000 units of housing for, that's affordable, partly workforce, partly affordable, low-income. But if you think about that 14,000 household number, um, it kind of relates to and connects with that 20,000 number, too. And if you look at the waiting list for public housing, um, so our estimate is 20,000. Um, that's higher than some of the other estimates. But we've done a lot of work around that and um, don't think it's much lower for sure. Mm-hmm. On your site, you all talk about ending homelessness as as being the goal. Mm-hmm. And I've always kind of wondered about that um, yeah. just in kind of general terms. It, it, it seems like this unattainable, impossible goal. And kind of how do you reckon with that? Mm-hmm. Are there shorter term goals that are <laughs> kind of more, you know, more attainable and then – do enhanced services, I guess, attract more need? Yeah. From other cities, even people moving here. Yeah. So I'll be clear. Our goal is to work ourselves out of a job because right. there's no outreach workers that are needed because everybody has housing. Mm-hmm. We believe in a society. We believe in a world. We believe in a city that has enough housing for its people. We believe that housing is a human right and we shouldn't settle for less. So our vision for the world that we will work with work for until our last day, our last breath, is for everybody to have housing. Um, Realistically, (laughs) that's probably going to take a minute. (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's going to be the long haul work and hopefully we'll make a dent in it in our lifetime. But but realistically, it is possible in in the foreseeable future to end chronic homelessness, to end long-term homelessness, to have a system in our city. And the Homelessness Commission, now the Homeless Impact Division, is really working on this system to say nobody should be unhoused for more than 90 days because we have a shelter system that's working with the housing system and we're really quickly moving people from the streets to housing in a really organized, coordinated way and we have the units for them to move into. That's our problem in Nashville. Um, We have great outreach workers. We have really great people um, who work really hard, but there's no units to move people into. Um, We can mostly end veteran homelessness. You know, we can, I think we should try be trying to end child homelessness. These things are more attainable, those chunks. Um, but certainly our goal is to, to eliminate homelessness because people have dignified options. Mm-hmm. And I'm not just talking about options. So some of our people in camps are like, I have a better life in this campsite than I would in the slums where you're going to put me, where there's drug traffic. You know, I'm sober in the woods, but if, if you put me on Murfreesboro Road um, in these slums, then I'm going to be, people are knocking on my door at every hour of the night. Like, I don't have dignified options. Why are you trying to do this to me? Um, put me in a box um, where there's no windows, where there's roaches. The landlords don't care about me. Um, that's not a dignified option for people. We want a world where people have dignified options. If I'm looking for a house, I'm looking for a place with a yard. I want that for my people, too. I want that for our friends, too. And it's, it doesn't exist. So the kind of distinction between chronic homelessness seems seems very important. 
is there an example of a of a peer city that you can point to that's really doing that well to prevent chronic homelessness? I know that Utah's made some big dents, um, especially with some housing first work um, toward ending chronic homelessness. Some places in Utah. We've also looked at Denver. We've looked at some things from Indianapolis. I remember studying their housing trust fund back in 2011 and looking at some of the things they were doing. But a lot of cities are struggling with very similar things that we are right now. Um, And I think we do have a lot to learn from what's working well. One of the things that's frustrating in Nashville is when we try to pass progressive things through Metro Council on a city-wide scale, um, the state can come in and preempt that. The state can come in and shut that down. We saw that with inclusionary zoning. So we're realizing that we have to not just get a citywide perspective or like strategy, but not only a regional strategy, but a statewide strategy to do this. Because if Nashville, um, if we were to end homelessness, a lot of people would probably come here and try that. We have to have a more regional strategy. Um, we have to be coordinating with folks at the state legislature so they don't shut down progressive things that we need for Nashville. Um, And I'm hopeful that more inroads and relationships can be built there now that we know the terrain. So going off of that, how do you balance as an organization and also just an organizer and an advocate, how do you balance the policy work with the direct outreach work that is clearly the the main focus? Mm -hmm. We can't just do one or the other. Um, For Open Table Nashville, our heart has always been in both the boots on the ground, hands-on, relational work, um, that mercy work. But if we were to only do that, we would be creating this toxic charity that perpetuates the need for itself if we weren't doing the justice. Mm. The justice keeps us going. If we only did the justice work, we would get disconnected from the ground. So for us, having that hybrid approach is crucial we need more funding. We would love to hire another um, advocacy and policy director. We'd love to hire an organizer. We don't have funds for that right now. But that work is so crucial. In the winter, it's hard. Winter is our hardest time um, because we're trying to prevent deaths and cold weather injuries all the time and responding to crisis situations all the time. Um, So our policy and advocacy work can drop off. But in working with groups like NOAA and A Voice and some other groups, it's really allowed us to stay on the forefront Um, and going to public meetings, working with city council members. One of my goals is um, to invite every single city council member to come out with us on the coldest nights this winter um, to canvas the city with us when we go out from 7 to 1030 Jim Schulman did that when he was a council member at large. Now he's vice mayor, and he's one of our biggest advocates for some of the cold weather stuff that we're looking at for the city. Um, When you see what we see, it completely changes your world. You see people and the conditions they're living in, and you meet them, and you learn their names and their stories, and you no longer see them as problems. You see them as brothers, sisters, and siblings. And so if there are more people that could see what we see, and we, we're inviting everybody in Metro, everybody in any congregation of any faith, anybody of no faith who just wants to come out with us, we don't care. We really want you to see this, and it's the perfect time to plug in. Um, you can email winter at opentablenashville.org to do that or just reach out to any of us on the website. But we and need those, you to see what we're Are those seeing. walk-arounds on like a rolling basis, or are there a couple – key dates that people could plug in? So every night when it's 28 or under, um, the city opens the overflow shelter and we 
just cover the whole city. We have team downtown. We have a team in north, south, um, and west, east and west Nashville. So we have five teams that go out. And from 7 to 10 p.m., we're getting everybody into the shelters that we can that didn't come in during the day. We're making sure people can survive the night with supplies. So you kind of have to be watching the weather, but we send email alerts out. So the last thing that I had on my list, and you've sort of touched on this already, but is the effect of cold weather. And of course, we're, we're seeing a rapid drop in, in uh, temperatures this week. Yeah. What's the effect of cold weather and what should we be watching out for and preparing for? Yeah, so everybody can carry things with them um, in their car, which I hope that they hope that you listeners will. Um, I will say that we always say if you see somebody you're worried about, stop and check on them. There's so many cold weather deaths um, from people that die in the city that were within sight from the road. People just passed them and never checked on them. Um, there's a guy named Jimmy Fulmer that died back in 2012, a very public death on the steps, church steps of East Nashville, um, East Nashville location, East Nashville church. And he was on crutches at the time and had one blue blanket over him. He froze to death on those church steps. Nobody stopped for him. Um, so we say, if you see somebody that you're worried about, stop and check in with them. I think about, I just want to name a few people that we've lost or that have lost limbs um, to this. There was a woman named Alice in Madison who died in her car. There was a woman named Janice who died on church steps in Madison last year. There's a man named Jimbo who died two years ago in his camp in Inglewood. There was my friend J.R. who lost both of his legs to frostbite. There was a man named Nick in Bellevue last year who we didn't know was out there. People are moving further and further out of the city into camps that we haven't reached yet. He lost parts of both of his feet due to frostbite. Um, there's a guy named Thomas who lost his thumbs. Um, there's so many people we've lost. A guy named Mike lost his toes. These deaths are and these injuries are wholly preventable. Um, we have to do more, and we are doing that as Open Table Nashville to reach folks, to build trust, to equip them, to make sure they know they have options and make sure they know that people care about them. Um, so I would say carry supplies with you. Educate yourself. Go to coldweathernashville.com to learn what the city's doing and what resources are out there and come out with us on the streets. It's so many of us just sit in our warm house at night and we sleep in our warm beds and we don't realize how miserable it is to be wet and cold like it is on this night that we're doing this podcast. We don't realize um, what people are going through. We need you to come out with us and we need you to see it because we believe that we can do better. I thought that that was going to be my last question. Something that you just mentioned that we talked about before we started recording is this notion that homeless people are, are being forced out and moving further and further out in, into the county. And so kind of an effect of, of gentrification. And that's in a way doubly concerning because then we don't notice the problem. Right. People are being moved out of sight, out of mind. There's no question about that. Um, we are seeing the unhoused communities rise in um, in Madison and Rivergate and Antioch and Bellevue um, and in some of the other satellite areas outside of the main downtown um, rings. And it's terribly concerning. Not only are there not services, as many services out there and outreach workers, um, but People are more and more off the grid, and it's becoming a growing problem for those groups. They don't have the resources to manage it. But our gentrification um, has not only pushed low-income families out, it's also pushed people experiencing homelessness out. And again, we can do better. Nashville should be at a 8 or 9 on that 10, 10 mm -hmm. scale that we talked about earlier. And we're, we're at a 5. At, 
we, you know, maybe five was too generous. Like, I can't tell. The more I talk about it, the more I'm like, back to four. Right. <laughs> but no, we're really struggling. We've got to do better. And we can do better. I hate that so many things are tied up in development and politics and money. That is, as a, I'm a, I'm a minister, and there is a strong moral, um, ethical issue that's going on here. Um, again, continuing to place profit over people. Um, we are losing our soul. And and our liberation is connected with the liberation of the least among us. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. And we've got to do better. Well said. Well, I guess we'll leave it there unless you have any closing comments. Come out with us. If you doubt anything I've just said, let me show you our world. Let me show you where people are living um, and how they're how they're surviving. It'll, it'll rock your world. Um, come out with us. But thank you for having me on. Um, Open Table Nashville is a resource, so use us and let us know how we can support in this. Yes, and I will make an effort to get out there this winter with you guys. It'll be fun. (laughs) Bundle up. (laughs) Well, thanks a lot. This has been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Ben.